Blog Talk Radio. BlogTalkRadio.com. My name is Michael Gordon. I'm your host of the program. Welcome to the show. Today we're talking about loneliness, something that a lot of us um, have faced or are facing in our lives. But today we're talking about loneliness in a different context in terms of the effect it has on our overall health, not just our emotional health, but our physiological health as well. If you're listening to the program for the first time, I want to welcome you to the show. And of course, all of our previous topics and programs are available here on Blog Talk Radio or on iTunes as downloads. And uh, you can find any of those topics, and um, they're there for your uh, perusal at your on your own leisurely time. And uh, we also have a Facebook page at uh, facebook.com forward slash The Mind Whisperer. So please uh, find us there and. Follow us on Facebook, and we also have a, a link there for PayPal, where we're uh, taking donations to help keep the show going and support us, what we're doing here. It's all uh, volunteer-run, and I, I am happy to bring you these topics and presentations, um, but of course, it's always um, helpful to um, have your support and your financial support to uh, make the show grow and be more successful. All right, so yes. Right to the topic at hand, and uh, I came across a very interesting article uh, that I, I owe a um, thank you to, um, and I'll give a shout out here publicly to my friend Arlene Bishop in Toronto, who's a musician and uh, songwriter, and uh, she posted a link to an article on, on the New Republic dot uh, com, uh, which is a very topical magazine. Um, with great depth coverage and uh, from May 13th of this year, 2013. In the science section, um, there's an article called The Lethality of Loneliness. And it's talking about um, a number of different perspectives on loneliness, but particularly how research and empirical data from the last 50 years has really changed our understanding of loneliness. And, and, and that's in line with the changes in the field of psychology less from, um, well, actually, in some ways, you know, the author in this article contends that biology has taken over the field of uh, psychology. In other words, uh, you know, neuroscience and biopsychology um, have dominated research. We're looking at, again, the the, uh, organism uh, um, and the function of the human experience as um, being biologically determined or characterized, um, which has enormous benefits, of course, to look what's going on in the functionality. But, you know, science often swings in one direction, has to come back into balance. And um, she begins the article talking about um, a very influential um, 
researcher and psychologist in the 50s named Frieda Fromm-Reichmann. And um, Fromm-Reichmann is, of course, the woman who um, became immortalized in the book um, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden, uh, which is about a patient that she treated in um, who had uh, schizophrenia, severe schizophrenia, named Joanne Greenberg. And um, it was really because of her warmth and her uh, rapport and her connection with this patient when others had, you know, kind of labeled her schizophrenic and, and wanted to distance themselves, uh, you know, out of out of the protocol of treatment at the time. Um, but it was that connection and the trust and intimacy um, that was in no small part responsible for Greenberg recovering and ending up writing a book. Um, and uh, from Reichman, um, you know, as a psychoanalyst. So it's just very interesting to remember that when we're looking at these indicators of human health and mental well-being and happiness, that um, it's not an either-or prospect. Either, you know, there's healthy brain function and physiology, or there's a psychological disorder, that they're they're intertwined, they're interlinked. And this topic is really um, illuminates that as much as any other. And I'll get into that a little bit right now, uh, drawing again from this article from the New Republic. And um, one of the... Um, one of the studies that um, really highlights uh, the impact of uh, social isolation, particularly in early childhood, um, is, a, is a very famous research that was done uh, on orphans uh, during the reign of uh, Nicolae Ceausescu in Romania. And studies on these orphans uh, who were later adopted into the United States show um, uh, a, a deficiency in uh, gray matter, and gray matter is the cortical matter. That's the uh, the stuff that the brain is made of that processes information and registers, um, if you will, registers consciousness. Um, and in these children, there was a def there, there was less gray matter material, but it also affects what's called the white matter, and the white matter. Um, in the article, the, the, uh, you know, they describe white matter as sort of being like the mind's internal internet. And so you have this deficiency in function between the limbic system, which is our fight-or-flight response, and kind of the more earlier aspect of the brain as it evolved, but that still has a regulatory effect on what we call the vestigial brain and some people call the lizard brain. But that's the fight or flight center. That's what you know defines us as an organism at a set point of um, survival. But what sets us apart as higher functioning and adapted human beings is the prefrontal cortex or the, or the neocortex, the frontal brain. And so the, ab the absence of healthy gray matter and white matter in the brain interrupts the flow of information between those two. And I've talked a lot in the program about how that affects our responses to stimuli in the world and how um, it can predispose us to being anxious or depressed or fearful or paranoid. And, of course, you have all kinds of mental disorders that go from um, oversensitivity or mixed signals in the brain. 
and the, the greater technology that we have now um, allows us to uh, look even further into um, the way that damage is done to those orphans. Now, why is that the case? Well, there's been other studies, and it's noted in this article, um, some of them quite inhumane, unfortunately. Um, studies done on macaques who are very socially organized primates and um, very adaptable, and so they're often used in research. And um, they did uh, controlled studies with the monkeys as they were being raised in captivity, um, and some were socially isolated with only a wire um, surrogate mother. Some were only left with their peers. And of course, you have all these um, measurements of how maladapted the isolated um, young monkeys were. Interestingly enough, as is the case with foster children from orphanages, um, those effects of early isolation can be reversed. So when you have foster care for these monkeys after research, um, they do integrate socially. Um, and we can also look at uh, our immune and physiological health as it relates to loneliness. Um, another researcher, if I just scroll back up through this article, um, was uh, took advantage of a very unfortunate situation uh, back in the 80s, but as it was unfolding um, naturally in, in, in nature, I don't know if naturally is the right word, but it was occurring, um, and uh, talking about um, the, um, the AIDS, uh, the onset of the AIDS epidemic in the 80s. And um, just trying to find this section in the article here, bear with me. Um, so UCLA lab attained access to a long-term study of gay men um, and uh, who enrolled in the study without knowing whether they were infected with HIV. And um, they asked them all kinds of questions about their lifestyles, their sexual behavior, their attitudes towards their own homosexuality, levels of emotional support, and so on. By 1993, about one-third of the group had developed full-blown AIDS, and slightly more than a quarter had died. The researcher named uh, Stephen Cole was a young uh, PhD student, and he was, you know, kind of wanted to look at more the subjective aspect of what was going on. And um, while the research was looking at social factors that sped up the progress of the disease, you know, testing obvious things like socioeconomic status and levels of support, you know, material support. Um, but he, what he found was that although poor or lacking family and friends, it didn't really change the rate at which the infected individual would die of AIDS. So it occurred to this student, uh, Stephen Cole, um, if he was looking at it from the point of view of one of these men who turned out to be infected, um, as he sort of learned and emphasized with, about their experience, that the experience of being closeted um, creates an enormous amount of stress. And um, to cut a long story short, that um, is associated with um, higher inflammatory rate in the, in the body and the body's immune responses, cell, white blood cell count, inflammation, and, um, and the stress response of hormones in the body, blood pressure, immune system, et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out that um, that's correct. And the experience that, that most predicted whether an HIV-positive gay man would die sooner 
according to his research, was whether or not he was in the closet. And the closeted men who were infected with HIV died an average of two to three years earlier than men who were out of the closet. And when he, in fact, in, um, injected AIDS-infected blood with norepinephrine, which is a stress hormone, the virus replicated itself three to ten times faster than it did with non-dose cells. So this is fascinating. It tells us that the virus itself is susceptible to stress. So at a macro level, you have the infected host organism as a human being who is susceptible to all kinds of social and emotional stressors as a cascade effect down on the, uh, to the cellular level to the, the actual virus itself um, and can speed up the progress of the virus. So what does this all tell us? It tells us that we know that our um, ability to integrate socially, to bond and attach and have healthy relationships, our perceptions about ourselves, our, uh, the outcome of our um, success, career, health, relationships, um, our co you know, the cognitive function, our ability to um, uh, perform you know, intellectually or you know, any, in any area of intelligence, is greatly impaired by early social um, isolation. And of course, this is something that can be corrected later in life. Um, and we'll explore that in a later program. As, as program uh, today, I'm gonna keep a little shorter and you can go back to that article and find more information there yourself. But I'll do a part two of this program to look at um, what, uh, how we can take advantage of this understanding and not only repair the effects of loneliness in early life or isolation in, in later in life by looking at it from a spiritual point of view in terms of our relationship with ourselves and developing empathy within ourselves and um, as an antidote to that kind of pervasive loneliness that comes with um, kind of an existential angst in a way the suffering about being alone in, in an impermanent world, in a universe that's full of stress and change, not just our social relationships. Well, thanks for listening today. I hope you've enjoyed the program. It was a quick introduction, very packed. Um, I'll let you digest all that material. And um, we'll explore this topic again from a different angle on the next program. Until then, I'm Michael Gordon. This has been The Mind Whisper. Take care and have a great day.